Can we pray? Amen. 1926, Reverend James Allen Francis wrote this. He was born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never had a family or owned a home. He never set foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never wrote a book or held an office. He did none of these things that usually accompany uh, greatness. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure of much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. That was a long time ago. This is written in 1926, and I've heard it here and there, and uh, it's really good because it summarized the life of Christ. And so we've been looking at the life of Christ. Uh, this is part two of it, about this solitary life, which is really uh, the most influential life of all of human history. Let's come to Luke chapter three to continue. Luke chapter three. Verse 23 talks about when Jesus began his public ministry. We looked last week about his birth and prophecies about his birth. And so this morning, verse number 23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, and then he gives you the genealogy. And so at age 30, he began to fulfill his role as the son of God at age 30. Now, there is preparation, and then there's presentation. So let's look at those two things this morning. Presentation, presentation, and then before that, the preparation for the Son of God, the coming of somebody else to prepare the way for the Son of God. And that will be found in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, the preparation for the coming of the Son of God. The preparation involves the coming of another man. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now sometimes people say, well, the Baptist church is the only true church in history because of John the Baptist. And the Baptist church began with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called John the Baptist because he baptized, he immersed people, not because he began the first Baptist church. And so sometimes there is Baptist pride and it becomes so exclusive that nobody else is a true church unless they're a Baptist church. Well, not quite true. <laughs> uh, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So we're very familiar with, with his strange apparel. His fashion was quite unique, and his diet was quite unique. I don't know if anybody has tried to mimic or copy his diet, as some people are wont to do in the Old Testament, 
if it's honey, if it's bread, if it's whatever it is, they'll take that from the Bible and say, okay, this is kind of that we should have today. Well, I don't see anybody taking up the locust part of it. They might take the honey part of it. And honey is supposed to be good for you, but what about the locust part? How can we pick and choose cafeteria style about different things in the Bible? It's funny, kind of funny to me that that happens. So in Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse number 1, when it says in Matthew, in those days came John the Baptist preaching, he is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, which you're going to have to turn back to and see. Malachi chapter 3, and then Isaiah chapter 40. The last book of the Old Testament has a prophecy about someone coming to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Malachi chapter 3, verse number 1. Preparation of the coming of the Son of God is by the coming of his cousin. Verse number 1, Malachi 3. Behold, I will send my messenger. A messenger delivers messages. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, and so on. So you want to note the emphasis on the words of I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way. And that's why John is called the preparer for Jesus Christ. He was the one who set the stage for him in a sense. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse number 3. Isaiah 40, verse number 3. The voice. Have you heard of the program called The Voice? I think there's one in Britain, one in America, I'm not sure, but I think there was a program called The Voice where people audition or sing songs before some professional singers who have been in the industry for a long time and they judge uh, this guy's voice. And so I think if they turn or something or they hit the button and you're out of here or you're, you're going to you know, be um, slated for stardom if you uh, impress the judges who are singers. Well, here's the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now it's interesting in this chapter you have a, a near and a far prophecy. Near in that when John the Baptist came, he would prepare the way for Christ, but all of these things would not have come to pass when Jesus came the first time. But the second time he comes, it'll be fulfilled. And so you have that dual long view and short view, short view, long view kind of aspect of the prophecy. What you want to know so far is that the Old Testament prophets uh, describe the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's John the Baptist. Now, you have some testimonies regarding the forerunner of Christ by... John Baptist himself about himself. It's kind of interesting with people to, to think about what people say about themselves. It reveals what they think about their self, themselves, their self-esteem or their humility or their ego. Uh, if you talk to Elon Musk, you would find that he's a very egotistical man or he has a high esteem about his confidence and everything else about him. You couldn't do what he has done unless you have uh, this, this ego, this driven, this ambition about you. Uh, you couldn't have someone meek and humble to be doing SpaceX or uh, all these other things that he's into. Okay? You can't do that. Send people to Mars? What humble person would say, I can send people to Mars? 
Someone with the eagle like Elon Musk says, I can send people to Mars. The question you have to ask is, why? Why Mars? Why don't you just send people around this world where we have atmosphere and we have life and why send them to Mars? What are you going to do when you get to Mars? Well, I guess people with an eagle that big can figure out something after they get there and they get stuck. Let's see, we don't have any food, we don't have any water. We've got three days left. What are we going to do? We'll figure it out. Uh, sorry, Elon, too late. <laughs> you might be stranded there, and then what? <laughs> okay, is John Baptist like that? Let's take a look. John chapter, John chapter 1. The testament of John about himself is this. John 1, verse number 6. John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name is John. The same for a witness. A witness testifies. The same came for a witness. You're familiar with the court scene? A witness is to testify. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the capital L-I-G-H-T, light. In the book of John, John records Jesus Christ as saying seven I am statements. I am the light of the world. And to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So John, John's testimony is that he is quite humble. He's not the light. He's not the star. He's not the one with the, the spotlight on him. He is a secondary character. In a movie production, you have the main character and a supporting cast. And whatever they're called, they all support the role of the main character. The main character gets the Oscar. He gets, she gets the, whatever the award is. And so the others, they play their role and they make this person look bad, look good according to the script. Well, John's role was to make Jesus Christ look good. Let him shine like he's supposed to shine. And so he never did claim to be great. Look at verse number 20. The 23, uh, 19, 19, 119. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? He confessed and denied not, but confessed. Here's his testimony. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou not the prophet, that prophet? And he answered, No. 22. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou thyself? What is your testimony? Verse 23. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. We just saw that verse. And so you have John the Baptist saying, I'm just a voice. Look at verse number 27. He it is that who cometh after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloosen. So in verse 23, he says, I am a voice. In verse 27, I am not worthy. Now, John says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a, I just say, I just say something about the light. 
I am here to tell you about him. And I'm, I'm not here to be the light. I'm not here to replace the light. And verse number 30. 29. The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Well, when he says he's before me, John is really saying, wait a minute, he's before me. Who's older, Jesus or John? Who was born first? John was born first. So that makes him older than Jesus by six months. But here he says, he is before me. What is he talking about? He said he's before me as far as him being the eternal son of God. He's before me, not just in time, but in eternity. Big statement right there. And so uh, you find the testimony of John about himself is that uh, he's very humble. His humility comes right out very, very clear. And he doesn't claim to be anything else except a voice to speak of and to present the Son of God. And so, uh, Matthew chapter 3. Something else about John's testimony. As we look at the preparation for the Son of God. Preparation for his public ministry. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? What does that say about John? He says, Oh, no, 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 I, no, no, wait a minute. Why are you? No, you should not. I, I, don't, I don't have the right, I don't have the honor and the privilege to baptize you. I'm an inferior to you. I'm an inferior. You should be doing that to me. Verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill our righteousness. Then he suffered him. All right, so he baptized uh, Jesus, but John hesitated to baptize the Lord because he felt unworthy. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 30. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 30. There is no verse 30. How about John? <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. It was just a test. <laughs> 3.30, John 3.30. This is how you have scrabble errors if they copy scripture. <laughs> and they were legitimate scrabble errors too. Spelling errors and things like that. Punctuation errors. John 3.30. Jesus, uh, John's testimony about himself. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So people sometimes exalt John the Baptist above measure when John never intended to be exalted at all. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm not even worthy to baptize the Son of God. Uh, he, he's the one that needs to be elevated, exalted, not me. And so he's a humble man, he's a humble servant, he's a humble voice, and that's the lesson for every Christian today. Now, there's a testimony of the Son of God himself about John. Turn to Luke chapter 7. John testified about his role and his person in regards to the coming of the Messiah. And then Jesus has the testimony about John the Baptist. 
John 7 and verse number 28. Let's go to verse 20, 25, uh, 24 to begin, 24, get some, <clears throat> get some running start, get some context here. Verse 24, John 7, 24. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live del delicately are in king's courts. You said these are the upper class, the higher of the social strata kind of people. And not to, uh, not to be critical, but these should be the people in our understanding of things, the ones that shop at certain stores because they can. They're the ones that drive certain cars because they can. They're the ones that eat certain restaurants because they can. And uh, they do things and go places that not everybody can do and go. They are the higher ups. Uh, sometimes they're called in American culture, the blue blood kind of people. They're wealthy. They're even a lot of times snooty. Snooty. You know what high nose means? High nose, you walk like this. You look at people through the bottom of your eyes, bottom of your glasses. In other words, you give the air or the attitude like, <laughs> like, we more better than you, brah. <laughs> what are you doing next to me? Don't touch me. You might defile me. You know, that kind of attitude. <laughs> And uh, these are the kind of people that when they drive, if they do drive, they honk at you because you're going too slow or you're not moving fast enough. These are the kind of people that seem to um, feel like they are the cream of the crop or they are the, as we say, the high muckety mucks. Well, uh, that's the, the attitude, the tone of those who are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately. Now, by the way, if someone does live uh, delicately or are gorgeously apparel, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that bad. The outward often reflects the inside. And if a person likes to dress a certain way, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're carnal or, or corrupt. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that when, when the Lord talks like this, uh, he's making a comparison, a contrast between people who are common and plain, like John the Baptist, and people who are way up there, and they have no interest or connection to common people. They are in their own world, in their own sphere. They are on another planet. And they just feel like they can you know, push people away and do that and do this and so on. And uh, so, uh, verse 26. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, much more than a prophet. Verse 27. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verse 28. Oh, by the way, when it comes to the clergy, supposedly, the clergy, sometimes the clergy or the priesthood class, they dress in a separate kind of apparel to distinguish themselves from the, the common man. So they have the, the, the clergy and then they have the laity. They have the professionals and then they have the non-professionals. They have the people, the laymen, then they have those who serve, quote, the church. And they have a formality about them, a robe about them. They wear something on their head. They, you know, there's incense and things like that. And so they separate themselves from the common man. 
and that's part of this whole mix here. And so should someone who is in the, the class of the clergy make himself separate from common people? Um, it's an interesting thought because you don't want to become so common that you have lost your distinction as a quote minister, right? You don't want to be so much a part of them that you have lost any influence on them. You don't want to be so like them that you have lost any credibility or any any um, authority in the sense of being a quote man of God. You want to keep that distinction, but still you don't want to become uh, so high up there that people have to um, take oxygen to meet, talk to you. <laughs> okay. So there is a, a common sense about this, and a and a good sense about. Um, in a way, it's good when someone cusses. Not that he cusses, but he cusses in front of a pastor. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that in front of you. That's that's kind of like a good respect. You know, it's a good respectful thing. And so uh, you can go both ways on this. You can become so separate from the people that they cannot identify with you. Or you can become so much like them that nothing you say has any effect on them because you're just a buddy, a pal. Now. That's a, a balancing act there, but it should be clear. All right, verse 28. But I say unto you, this is the testimony of Jesus about John the Baptist. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, well, who would that include? That would include everybody. Everyone's born of women. Men cannot give babies. Shucks, I didn't know that. Jesus was out of date here. He's old-fashioned. He did not know that in 2022 and 23 that men can give birth. Among those that are born of woman, there is not a greater prophet. Now here's the testimony. There's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. There's not a greater prophet. Would you say Elijah was a great prophet? Elisha? Sure. Would you say Moses was a great prophet? Of course. But then he says John the Baptist is top of the pile, top of the ladder. So that's quite a testimony about John. John never sought attention, never sought fame, never sought glory, never sought uh, preeminence, but Jesus says he's the greatest of all the prophets. And what Jesus says about John, probably to John, counted more than anybody else, what anybody else said about John. And so he was content with that. And so the forerunner of Jesus Christ, in preparation for the Son of God, he was a very humble man, and the testimony of himself says that, and the testimony of Christ says, though he is great. Now, what about the Father's testimony about the Son? Okay, you have testimony, testimony time. You testify about what God has done and so on and answer the prayer. Testimony time, it, it, it's, it's meaningful because it's something that someone has to experience. John says, I'm a nobody. Jesus says, you are somebody. <laughs> and then look at what the Father says about his own son. Uh, come to Matthew chapter 3. Verse number 16, Matthew three sixteen. Whatever anybody says about the Son of God, you put stock in what the Father says about his Son. Verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him. When anybody else gets baptized, do the heavens open unto them? No. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. When someone gets water baptized, does that happen? No. And lightning upon him? No. Doesn't happen to anybody else. Verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
So the tone is set at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he's baptized that John testifies and uh, the Father testifies of the Son. And the Father says, I am well pleased with my Son. Which means anything that Jesus Christ did when he was a youth and then from uh, for 18 years when he was uh, kind of much obscure until 30, uh, whatever he did, he was pleasing to his Father, which is a very important thing to know. And then what he would do from 30 until the end of his life, he'd always be pleasing to his father. Which means everything that he did as an adult man in his public ministry was approved by God the Father. Which is a pretty big statement there because can we all say that? Can anybody say that? That anything we do is will please him to the Father? Or even the very person of the Son of God is well pleasing to the Father. Could anybody say in human history or church history or in the history of the Christian church that uh, they, they can say, I've been well pleasing to the Father. Well, maybe in a limited sense, like I've, the best that I could, done His will, the best that I could, etc. But nobody could say like the Father said about His Son. His person, His very being, and His actions, everything about Him was well pleasing. And so that's the testament of the Father about His Son. Uh, by an audible voice that probably shook people up. Lightning too, whoa, what's going on here? Something supernatural. And then look at the preaching of John the Baptist. The preaching of John the Baptist. He said, repent, repent, repent. Now, Matthew chapter 3, we're there. Look at verse number 7. Verse number 6 says, uh, verse number 5 says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, the but is to say he did preach repentance he did preach in a confrontational way but it seemed like something has changed the tone has changed when he saw the Pharisees and the scribes but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism he said unto them O generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance now I want to explain here that his preaching, John the Baptist's preaching, was very bold. No matter what he said about repentance, is very bold. You need to repent. The, the saying is, um, turn or burn, turn or burn, turn or burn. And that's a phrase that describes back in the 60s, you know, that the hard fist, the, the Billy Sunday, the, the uh, you know, that kind of preaching. And then people would say, well, that's preaching. Some say volume is preaching. Some say the the gestures is the preaching, the fist, the pointing finger, all these kind of things. It's all part of it. Now, how do you think John the Baptist preached? Well, he preached boldly, that's for sure. He was very bold in what he said to people. He's very plain in what he said. Repent, repent, and prove that you are repenting because of the fruits that you bear. He says, don't just tell us you're repenting. Don't just say that you're sorry. Prove that you're sorry. Prove that you're repenting by the actions thereafter. Zacchaeus proved he repented by the action of restoring fourfold to those he defrauded, cheated in uh, the tax money and so on. And so bring forth, verse 8, therefore fruits meet for repentance. Verse number 9, think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, and God is able all of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I need baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, 
whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now it seems like when he baptizes you, well, Jesus, did Jesus baptize anybody? His disciples did, but not Jesus. And the baptism here, you would assume is water because John baptized in water. But he says, he shall, Jesus says, John says about Jesus, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Verse 12, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner and he will burn all the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the fire and the baptism associates with the water, but maybe it's not water. Maybe it's not water. Maybe the baptism by definition be if you are to immerse someone or put someone in something like water baptism, put someone under water, dunking them, bring them out. Maybe the fire he's talking about here and the baptism here is about something else. Maybe it's about judgment because he does say whose stand is in his hand and he will freely purchase flour and gather his wheat and grain and will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It, this is not about water baptism. When John is not saying when Jesus comes, he'll baptize you. He's not saying that. But he does say in the future, he'll baptize you. He'll put you in unquenchable fire if you don't repent. Okay. Now he's looking a little bit farther ahead down the road. This is about eternal judgment. This is about the lake of fire. This is about uh, Revelation 20, about the uh, great white throne judgment. This is all about that, not just the immediate immediate fire and immediate uh, baptism. So it's not about water baptism. But John did baptize people who were sincerely repenting. You really sorry? You really repent? Okay, let's get baptized. Let's prove that you're sincere about that. Let's prove that. And after you get baptized, walk in unison of life, so to speak. See, like in Romans 6 tells us. Tells us. And so um, his preaching was very bold. Now, the question I want to ask you in a practical way is, is this type of preaching good for today? Should repentance be preached today? Oh, yes. Next question. Should repentance be preached every time you preach? Should you use the methods of John the Baptist every time? Should that style of preaching be always 52 weeks out of the year? Are there other things to preach besides repentance? Are there other things people need to have besides repent and be saved? You know, if you preach about being saved every Sunday, it'd be really dull. Because the saved would say, I need to get fed. And you would say, as the, as the pastor or the preacher or an evangelist, if he's only preaching about being saved, and that would be good to preach that. But you got to preach something besides just be saved. And you got to preach in a different style or different way than just how John Baptist preached. When he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, Rip, hey, you generation of vipers, you snakes. Would you say that to everybody in church? <laughs> Invite people to come to church. And they come. You say, you, you people back over here, you people dress fancy and you know you have nice cars. You are a bunch of scoundrels. You're a bunch of uh, carnal, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's what John the Baptist did. But you know something? It was needed in his day. It was needed. It was necessary. And we're not saying that it is not necessary today. But I'm saying let's have some sense and some balance about everything. Let's look at some verses to, to help us round this out. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1, I charge thee, credit card. Oh, the Bible does endorse using credit cards. <laughs> I charge thee, 
People do get silly, you know. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, the instant in season, out of season. We do like this scripture. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering doctrine. But why does he say this? Because of verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So you got to reprove them, correct them, rebuke them. And after their own lust, they shall they heap to themselves teachers having its ears. So you got to reprove and rebuke them and exhort them. Verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. So you have to reprove, rebuke, and exhort them. And shall be turned into fables. You don't want that to happen, so you reprove, rebuke, and exhort them. Verse 5. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, and so on. Now, that's the reason why John or, or, or Paul has written these things to Timothy about his focus and his priority to preach the word of God because people need to hear that. But also, go back a chapter, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 23. In the very same epistle, he says this, verse 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes. Now, because of that verse 23, and if you, let's just read the, the to, through verse 26. Verse 24 then says, 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, strive, but be gentle unto all men. But that doesn't sound like chapter 4. That doesn't sound like John the Baptist. Be gentle unto all men. After teach, patient. 25, in meekness, instructing themselves, uh, those who oppose them, that impose themselves, if God prevents, will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth, and that they all may recover themselves out of the sin of the devil, and so on. So you have a different tone right here, don't you, in chapter 2, than chapter 4, than John the Baptist. What is all that about? Well, some would argue <clears throat> that chapter 2 is about a personal confrontation, a personal one-on-one, -on -one, one to three, you know, small group kind of thing, where you don't really yell at them, scream at them, and put your fist in their face, that kind of thing. Because um, of the foolish questions that is asked here in this short uh, part of chapter 2. But it does seem that is true. However, it could be true too. That you do teach not only privately but publicly. It's a public setting as well. And so you're going to have both things in place. So I'm not saying do one or the other. I'm saying do both. You got to do both. How do you treat your kids? Well, you give them the truth but you give the truth in love, don't you? How do you rebuke them? Rebuke them in love and you have to be firm, but you also have to be flexible. You can't just be one way all the time. Sometimes parents are always strict, 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 military-like. They grow up to be very resentful of their childhood. They grow up to really despise their parents because they were so strict. Oh, you know, sorry, no Christmas presents. Why? Oh, because. Sorry, no birthday celebration. Why? Oh, because. Because I said so. Because I'm the authority of the house, blah, blah, blah. And all true but kind of overboard and no balance and no 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 heart no 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 kindness compassion there and uh believe it or not people need to have both people need to have firmness to know how far they can go in this they better not cross this line because if they do bang out comes the paddle <laughs> and there's appropriateness to that and then sometimes there's a warning and then sometimes the warning is enough because they know by now that if i cross this line here's what that here's what mom's gonna do and when you are consistent with that, they respect that. And when they grow up, they don't hate you. They don't despise you. They say, oh, I'm so glad my parents were like that to me. 
But you cannot be in preaching like John the Baptist all the time. You cannot. How would you like to meet your friend for lunch and all they do is scold you, correct you? How would you like to do that? Would that be enjoyable? Oh, let's have lunch. Let's have a tea together. Men will not have tea. Because tea cannot feed anybody. So that one quarter of a sandwich, how can that be filling? So we're going to eat. And all this is, uh, okay, now why did you do that? What? Why did you do that on Sunday? Why did you do that on Monday? Well, how come that, da, 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 da? And everything is just a rebuke all the time. Well, the Bible says confront them and, uh, you know, there's got to be some sense about everything. Otherwise, uh, now I don't know if you want to be a hermit. I don't know if you want to be um, a lone ranger or a lone wolf or whatever. Maybe that's your, I, I'm just saying normal people, they will take something from you if it's the truth. And if you give it to them firmly, but kindly, most people will not rebel against that. They'll say, oh, thanks for telling me the truth later on, maybe. But uh, you cannot be always pointing a finger at people, friends or strangers or in church. You cannot always be scolding, correcting, rebuking all the time. John the Baptist is needed, but so is the Apostle Paul. He's also needed too. All right? So you've got to have a balance over here. So the presentation of the Son of God, presentation of the Son of God, look at chapter 1 of John again. He's about to enter his public ministry. Chapter 1. Verse 29. twenty nine. The next day John said Jesus coming unto him. And said behold the Lamb of God. That's an announcement. Which taketh away the sin of the world. That's an intent as to why he has come. First time it's been said. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man who is, who is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. So this was a public statement about this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God that we've been looking for in prophecy. This is he of whom I spoke about, and he's made known to Israel. Now, the calling of the disciples will be one of the next things that happens, but this is a setup for his public ministry. And I want to also just interject here. I don't know if I really covered this or not, but uh, little was known about his youth when he was growing up, very little. And so uh, from his from his birth until his boyhood up to 12, we know something about that, just a little bit. But in, turn to Luke 4, and we'll, this is like a statement to um, embody his youth, the so-called obscure years. Luke 4, 16. And then next time, we'll look at the the calling of his disciples and the first miracle that he performed. Luke 4 and verse 16. Luke 4:16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So from that verse, you know something about his youth, about his boyhood. You know that when he was a little boy, it says, as his custom was. That means this is what he did on a routine. This is his routine for the week. As his custom was, he did these things. Went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's what all Jewish boys would do. That's what his Jewish friends would do, his boyfriends. Wait a minute, let me, let me clarify that. His boy, his guy friends, not his boyfriends. 
his friends who are boys, young men friends, teenage friends, and so on, right? Got to make clear these things nowadays, which is like, why would you even need clarification if you were thinking normally? All right, he says, uh, these are the things he did as his custom was, so we know that about him. We know that he did these things as a youth growing up. So we have a statement about what he was like. We knew where he lived. We knew what he we did a little bit now because of this verse number 16. Then in synagogue with his friends, prayed, read the law, sang, heard the rabbi teaching and exhortations, and he uh, also uh, had opportunity to ask questions, and maybe even opportunity to say a few words from a certain scripture from the Old Testament. And so, but he did not, we know this too. We know what he did as a youth, generally. We also know this, he did not declare his intention for coming, his intention for being born so far. As a boy, he did not. And so he did not declare his purpose for coming. We know that. So we know two things, right? We know three things, actually, because in Luke it says that he grew in wisdom with favor, and favor with God and men, so on like that. What verse is that? Luke chapter 1? Okay, 2? Chapter 2? Yes. Uh, verse 51 says... He went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. So we know he was obedient. But his mother kept all these saints in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. So we know he grew physically. We know he grew emotionally and mentally and uh, academically and in faith with God. So we know he was a spiritual young man and faith with men. We know that he had a good testimony. We know he was respectful. He wasn't a graffiti artist. He was not somebody who just went around kicking, you know, dogs and cats because he wanted to. It wasn't angry. Uh, fits of up. We know that he was a man, a young man who was. Oh, that's that's Joseph's son. Boy, look at that. You know, look at that. And everything anybody said about him was favorable. It seemed like he had favor with God and with man. So we know those things about him. So whatever anybody writes is speculation. There's a story about. Um, Jesus has a young man working in his father's carpenter shop. They're building a table. Here's a, here's a, a guest. They're building a table. And the, the, the boards are too short, Francis. The boards are too short. So Jesus laid hands on the table and stretched it out miraculously. So that it was the right length. You know what that is? Pure speculation. Just a guest. Just a, make a fantastic statement. Get on the TV circuit and interview circuit and make some money off of the it didn't happen like that uh, because we, we know that his first miracle was when he turned water to wine in Cana, yes? The beginning of miracles? Well, if it's the beginning of miracles, that means no miracles took place before because this was the beginning of the miracles. So we know about six or seven things about Jesus' youth, which is enough for you to know. And the Gospels emphasize not his youth, but his adult life and his ministry, his public ministry. There are seven events that take place uh, and so we'll cover that next time from the calling of the disciples going forward, okay? All right, any questions? I was talking kind of fast today, but that's how it goes, you know? <laughs>